This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a rehab experience that gives compassion and connection to addicts and alcoholics rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, and they make sure that whatever you're kicking your detox is as comfortable as possible. They have amazing amenities. They have sound bath meditation, yoga, fucking equine therapy, sweat lodge. They have it all. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I highly recommend going to Aloe. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and my name is Dave, and uh, this is a bonus episode of Dopey. I recorded it a few months ago. We had read an article written by this actor, writer, podcaster, woman in recovery named Rivka Reyes, who you might know from the incredible movie, The School of Rock. She played Katie, the bass player. And she wrote an article called Confessions of an Obsolete Child Actor. And it really moved me. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in what these kids go through who get famous. And I was such a fan. I'm a current fan of School of Rock and Riv Correa's. And School of Rock was a movie that I discovered, that I, I got to see for the first time when I moved to California and I moved in with Jeremy and Todd. And they loved it. And I loved it. And I want to say it's one of the only movies that I can think of that I loved just as much sober, wasted, kicking, and even with my children. My Nora loves School of Rock. And, and what is not to love? It is a, an amazing movie. And if you guys didn't know this, there was a tragedy last week in the School of Rock community where the kid who played the drummer, Freddie Spazzy McGee Jones, his name was Kevin Clark, and he died. He, uh, he got into some kind of car accident last week on the way home from a band rehearsal, and, um, which makes me sad. He was a, you know, I think he had some struggles around addiction. I don't know if he was an addict or an alcoholic. Rivka talked about it a little bit in the interview, but I figured I was going to put this out before that happened, but I had stalled putting out my bonus episode. So now it's kind of even more apropos that uh, the Riv Correa's interview comes on Dopey. So check it out. Rivka is an incredibly thoughtful woman. Uh, she has her own podcast. She does so many different things. She's a comedian. She's an actor. She is a, a, a very spiritual person. She, she does tarot reading. She does all sorts of shit. Her podcast is called Where Are We Now? It's a podcast diving deep into the elusive world of child stardom. And uh, it's very interesting, and uh, Rivka's a really, really cool person, so check her out. Here we go. We have the amazing producer, comedian, musician, actor, writer, and sober person, Rivka Reyes, best known for this fucking School of Rock movie that was a million (laughs) years ago, but welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I, I love, you know, talking about recovery. So I'm jazzed to be here. Now, I'm going to just start by saying in 2003, I had just left rehab, you know, a rehab, and I moved to Los Angeles, right? And I moved into a house in North Hollywood, and I, and I got all fucked up on crystal meth, and I moved into this house with these two guys, and they loved School of Rock. And I watched <laughs> School of Rock, and I was just like, I was like, this is like the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. So it's an honor to have you on the show, regardless of the fact that you're a sober person. And, uh, you know, I, I love that. But I have to say, I'm like, I, I, I know it's annoying, but I, I'm a big fan of School of Rock. It's not annoying. It's not annoying at all, especially, you know, it was annoying before I was in recovery. And I was very just like, I don't know, I had this chip on my shoulder about it. And it was just like, when are people going to start to realize that I'm more than just this 10 year old character? And like, da, da, da. and then like through working, like, you know, recovery and therapy and stuff like that. And like kind of doing a lot of inner child work. I'm like realizing that every time somebody like brings it up, it's not to like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's usually coming from a place of like, I love that movie and it inspired me or like that movie inspired my kids to play guitar and you should be very proud. And like, I needed to get off my fucking high horse and, and just start being goddamn grateful that I got this cool opportunity that not a lot of people get to have when they're 10, you know? Absolutely. Do you feel like it kind of ruined your life at all? Is that, is that part of the story? No, I, I will. I, you know, it's so funny because the, the media can manipulate my writing to make it seem that way. I feel like a lot of like <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of uh, publications twist my words and and it's like School of Rock child actor says the movie ruined their life. And it's like, that's not at all what I'm saying. I ruined my fucking life. I was the one who, you know, was it was, you know manufacturing my own misery for, you know, years and years and years. And my role in a movie in 2003 didn't do that. Like it was my, it was my thinking around my performance in that movie that, that led me to creating chaos and, and, you know, just again, like repeating cycles over and over and, of course, I blamed it on other people because I'm an asshole. <laughs> That's what, no, you're an addict. That's what we do. It doesn't make you an asshole. That makes you an addict. And I think that it's a lot of it's a double edged sword. Like, sure, you should be grateful that you were in this incredible movie that inspired people, me included. Um, but also, it puts you in a weird situation at a really young age. I read, I read your article in Medium. I thought it was brilliant. And I think, you know, it put you in a situation that a lot of kids are that where they don't get to be children. You know, like it, yeah. you, you, you become, I mean, you, you wrote in the, in the article that basically you had a job. You realized that now you're a working person and like people and your parents relied on you. And that, that was scary for me. I have a daughter who's 11. Who um, and you were eleven in that movie, right? I was ten when we filmed, and I was eleven when it came out. Right. So I was eleven when I was when I became a public figure. Right. Thereabouts, and like gearing up for it, like 
was it in terms of your own desire to be an artist or a performer or an actor how much of it was a chicken and an egg with your parents how much of it was you how much of it was them how did that work well you know i i don't really know it's it's funny i think i i i am now saying yes i am destined to be a performer i love performing i love writing i love music i love you know, podcast. I'm working on a podcast right now, and it's the most fun I've ever had. Like talking to other people who, you know, started off in the public eye as kids um, or teenagers and stuff. And it's really cool. It's really cool to like be going, you know, experiencing that. And I've always, you know, been a performer since I was a little kid. Um, I mean, looking at my like astrology chart and stuff like that, like there's also like things that point to like, oh, well, you are like meant to be a performer. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't really have that much of a choice. Like it was never it was never asked of me, like when I was, you know, doing, you know, guitar lessons and stuff like, oh, like, do you still like this? Do you still like this? Which I did still like it, but I also didn't know I had a voice so it's just this like combination of like, yes, I do love performing and I always wanted to be a performer, but was I, you know, did I have my own will at the time? Like, not really. Cause it was just like, Hey, you're doing this thing. Hey, you're doing this thing. Hey, you're going to go on this audition. Okay. Hey, you're going to go on this radio show. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Like, and I never really had my own autonomy as a kid, which I think a common like mistake that that parents of um, like performers make is like not checking in with them and seeing like if they still like something. That being said, I did like it the whole time. So it's like, it's fine. But I think that, you know, it's important that parents of child performers, actors, musicians, et cetera, dancers, athletes are checking in with their kids. Like, Hey, is this something you still want to do? Because a lot of the time, like, parents put their kids in an activity like sports or music or whatever, ice skating, dance, whatever, gymnastics, because it's something that they wanted for themselves. And like, they're not always honest and pure intentioned in their, um, their motives there, you know? Totally. I, I mean, I have two daughters. I have an 11 year old who like, we force her to do dance, but she says she likes it. She, we tried to force her to play piano, but she bailed. She didn't like it. She always said that she wanted to play drums. So she's like taking drum lessons now. And I'm like a pretty shitty musician, but I like to play. So like, I'll, we'll go down to the basement and we'll play. And, um, you know, she's with it. And then she's very perfectionistic and I'm not. And she stops me and I'm like, come on, let's just jam, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm, an, I'm, I'm leaving it be. And whatever she does, she does. She's got this great singing voice, but it's like I – my parents didn't really give a shit about what I did when I was a kid. Like when I read your article, I was like, wow, Rivka's parents really cared about her. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they really do. And it's they love me so much and I love them so much. And it's it's just that like I think because of their generation and like the way that, you know – I was brought up and whatever, like, but also I have nothing but gratitude and love for my, well, that's a lie. I don't have nothing but gratitude and love for my parents. I have complicated feelings about my parents 
and I'm still working through them and, you know, God bless them. But like they, they were doing the best they could with the tools that they had. And sometimes those tools are rusty and painful, (laughs) you know? Of course, of course. I, I mean, we all we all live with whatever our child, our childhood origin is. You know, we all live with it, and then we need to make the fucking best of it and try to make peace with it, whatever that means. Now, Rivka was just in the kitchen making some very strange concoction, and now she's drinking this coffee-looking concoction out of a jar. What are you drinking? What's the story, Rivka? It is mud water. Um, it sounds gross, but it's a combination of like, it's a proprietary like herb and spice blend of like cacao and cinnamon and reishi and, and cardamom and, and other things. And, um, it is a powder that I mix with a little water and, uh, non-dairy milk with some herbal tonics and tinctures that help me have nice skin. And, uh, and it gives me energy, uh, that, it doesn't quite feel like the same as the energy that coffee gives you, but uh, it's enough to it's enough to keep the edge off, I guess. <laughs> so it's become your coffee because you stopped drinking coffee. I stopped drinking coffee. I, I, well, I'm not going to lie on this fucking podcast about recovery. I am actively trying to stop drinking coffee, and I have. You know, I give myself a little coffee as a treat. It's kind of in that bargaining phase where I'm like, I'll only drink coffee on like one day a week, that kind of thing that we do. Um, And (laughs) yeah, I have like, I mean, if you look at the top of my fridge, I have at least like eight different beverage types like that are substitutes for coffee um, that aren't as good and (laughs) don't feel or taste as good. Um, that I'm just like kind of self-willing, uh, <laughs> uh, my caffeine addiction away by trying to replace it with like, yeah, mud water, chai, uh, matcha, cacao. We've got, I have this, uh, dandelion blend. That's really good. It wow. sounds like it'd be fucking gross, but it's really, really good. You're really going for it. You're going for it with hipster beverages to replace coffee. It's like, that could be a Je- a jeopardy category. Hipster beverages to replace coffee, and you go down that list. What about kombucha? You drink kombucha, or is there too much alcohol in it? I drink kombucha occasionally. Um, I love a bubbly, like, I love a um, a LaCroix. You know, that's obviously not a coffee supplement at all, but I love a a carbonated beverage. So, yeah, kombucha every once in a while. Um, I, I don't do well with, like, super acidic things, and I feel like, Kombucha is very vinegar yeah, tasting I and I kind of Mexican. You don't like it. I don't like it. I, I drink coffee. I don't drink too much. You know what I mean? Like I drink a few a few cups of coffee in the morning, but I don't drink it all day. But I don't, you know, I had bigger fish to fry. I wasn't worried about caffeine. Um, when you, But smoking, nicotine was something that I had to go crazy with stopping. But Yeah. Oh, my God. I hate... I, <laughs> I had a cigarette yesterday after a couple of months of not having any. How was um, it? It was nice. I was just like watching the sunset with my one of my uh, one of my sponsees, and it, it was it was really nice. I was just sitting on the roof of my building, and I was just like, "Hey, do you have a cigarette?" And they were like, "Yeah, do you want one?" And they were like, "Are you sure? Am I enabling something?" And I was just like, "Yes, but it's fine." Um, 
and it was really nice to have a bonding moment over a ciggy um, with with my little sponsee. It was really sweet. Um, yeah, they drove me yesterday to Dodger Stadium to get my vaccine, and uh, was it, <laughs> it was, was it, it was it was very sweet. Was it vaccine one or vaccine two? One, yeah, vaccine one. Right. Um, I got the the Moderna, the sweet and flirty Moderna. <laughs> I, I got the the Pfizer, and it was it was no big deal. You know, I I walked away because I used to shoot heroin, and I I walked away. I swear to God, I walked away from getting the vaccine, wondering why I couldn't taste it in my mouth. You know, like like, and I, I it was like an hour that I was just waiting for this fucking taste to come, and it never came, and that was very frustrating to me. Um, wow. But that's, it's, it's, I'm sure a bunch of people had that happen to them. Now let's go back in time. You're, you're in this gigantic movie. Like when does addiction rear its head? Like what was the deal? I think that my first addiction was people and like relationships. Uh, so I always kind of, you know, whenever I would go through like, not even like with like, romantic relationships, but like when a friend would like ignore me, I would go into intense withdrawal and I would feel this just like, I don't want to go to school. Like it was just like, Oh, like she's mad at me. Like my best friend is mad at me and I, I can't show my face in school. I have to stay in bed all day. And it was, you know, I was extremely codependent with my friends from early on because the first you know, a couple years of school, like, you know, preschool to, um, I think it was first grade. I was, I was in a couple different schools and, you know, I ended up transferring to, um, this, this school and finally having friends for the first time. And I was just like, wow, like, and I'd had the same class consistently and I was like attached in a way. And I remember being kind of really attached to my, one of my best girlfriends and, and then her cousin transferred to the school. And I was just like, she's going to like, she's going to drop everything and like, just be friends with her cousin and, and just be, and like this sense of like yearning for my friends, pining over my friends. And that's kind of when it started. And then, you know, it's interesting because my dad and his, uh, my dad's older brother, you know, had addiction issues. He was a major junkie, um, all sorts of like drugs. Cause he used to work at a hospital and basically like steal from the, the drugs. Um, and he would always like warn me. My dad would always like, you know, you know, we have like addictive like tendencies in this family and it's really important that you, you know, don't get into any of that stuff, especially, you know, peer pressure these days, blah, blah, blah. And, um, that was around the time I had already had my first drink, you know, like I, 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 my first, my first drink was like a couple sips of champagne, like at a, um, fancy Hollywood party that I had stolen, like, and, and it gave me that kind of like warm chest feeling of like, all right, I can like, you know, walk around this party. I remember specifically like taking a couple of sips of champagne at one of these like fancy Hollywood parties and then going in the bathroom and looking in the mirror and being like, you're cool. Like you got this, you know, and giving myself that little pep talk, that liquid courage pep talk. Well, not um, to mention you're very young and you're in a big Hollywood party and it's like, what a fucking mind fuck that must be in general. Because like you're this kid 
and you're in this major movie and like we tend to fantasize as children. So it's like all of a sudden you have that I have arrived feeling and it's accompanied by alcohol. So how could that not be incredibly seductive and intoxicating, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, like alcohol and drugs are so romanticized in Hollywood anyway. And like, yeah, I don't know. Um, but then I, I, after like the press um, from School of Rock kind of died down and I went back to school, people were really mean and like jealous and, and weird. <laughs> and I just, yeah, I kind of, I kind of was just like, well, what am I going to, what am I going to do? You know, how is high school going to be different so I can be cool and like fit in? And of course, yeah, I started, you know, drinking here and there. And, um, I was really only drinking to impress people. And then somewhere between, it was somewhere between my sophomore and junior year of, uh, high school that I started like smoking pot and like drinking and mixing things, you know, smoking pot and drinking on the same night, blacking out. I had my first blackout when I was 16. And, you know, my dad had to like come into this party and like carry me out. Like I, I got really sick. Um, and he like took pictures of me passed out to show me later, like to scare me, like, and it didn't work. And then, um, yeah, by the time I was like a senior in high school, I was like a stoner. Like I was stoned every day. I dated the school drug dealer. Um, you know, I, I developed a sex addiction and, and a bit of a, um, like, yeah, like an emotional codependency and, um, all sorts of just, <laughs> and then food stuff too. And, um, shoplifting. I mean, you name it, if there's a, you know, program for it. I'm probably addicted to it aside from gambling, but you know, right. I've never tried it. So um, yeah, I don't I'm know. Sure. Yeah. Just, just start buying some stocks and I'm sure you could qualify for that too. Um, what did, uh, the sex addiction in high school look like? Like how did that manifest on top of everything like, else? Sneaking off, you know, with girls or boys that I was, you know, involved with during school to like, fool around in the hallway, like in the like secret little corridor that everybody hooked up in and like that and like skipping class to go like hook up in my, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend's car, like yeah, that kind of stuff. And then also like, you know, sneaking people into my house because I had to have that like, you know, fix met or sneaking out and like getting in cars with like random people to like go to a party where my boyfriend or girlfriend was at. Um, <clears throat> and then also like, I was, you know, again, it was all like from this place of, you know, being hypersexualized as a kid and especially like, you know, being Asian and then also being like assigned female at birth, like just having like men on the internet be really gross when School of Rock came out and being like, wow, that basis is hot. And I'm like, uh, I'm 11. Like <laughs> you should never call a kid hot. Like that's fucking gross. And like having, you know, those comments uh, be read to me and, you know, and your mother, your mother, to me. your mother read you the comments. That's what I read. That's, yeah, that she, was a big mistake, right? <laughs> she can't feel good about that now, right? I don't know. Um, you know, we're, we're not on speaking terms, but oh, you no. know, it, yeah, I, 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 I wish her well. And, and, you know, 
I only share these parts of my story um, so that people can understand me and my mom is included in people. And I, I, you know, I hope that she, you know, doesn't hear some of the, or read some of the things that I write and think that, you know, I'm actively trying to, you know, make her seem like a bad person. She's not a bad person. It's just that, you know, we didn't, none of us really were prepared for how popular School of Rock was going to be. We were not prepared for the response. We were not prepared for the trolls, the bullies, any of it. And it could have been handled with more grace. Um, But that's, you know, in the past. And luckily, like now I have a pretty good, you know, support system and way to handle my trolls, like in whatever, um, which is by just like not engaging with them and honestly thanking them for the attention on my, you know, comment section, because it's like another, you know, just Instagram doesn't see it as trolling. Instagram sees it as another analytic, you know, (laughs) so. No, I get it. And I think that the word you used was gross and it is gross to be sexualized as an 11 year old, but it's also really unfair, you know, like to imagine that for my kid, like it, it makes me angry and it makes me up, it makes me furious. You know what I mean? Like that. And, and just disgusted, but it's so unfair because they're sexualizing someone that they don't see as a person, you know, like it's right. like, and, and they're sick and whatever, but they don't see that you're fucking kid and you have to live with it. And, um, and I always say this kind of stuff and I don't know if it does anybody any good. I think, you know, like give it time with your mother and, and maybe you can just bring her like what you went through and, 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 and maybe you can find a a good place to land because you're obviously doing really well right now. And maybe that can translate to opening up some doors because it'll be good for you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I love her so much. And, and, you know, my, my whole family is, is really codependent. It's just that it is what it is. And I feel no shame and or fear or guilt in saying that we know, I think, well, me and my sisters, like, and I think maybe my dad have this, like, Oh, my family has this kind of awareness that things are dysfunctional and it's just that most of us, and this is like beyond my, like, you know, immediate family. It's like most of the people in my family choose not to do or say anything about it. And they just kind of suppress, you know, and, and just cover, cover, cover and like, you know, mask it. And I think the fact that I'm in recovery and I'm speaking out about certain things and using my platform to, you know, be an advocate for mental health and for kids who, you know, go through sexual abuse early on and, you know, people who are going through addiction and, you know, people who were child actors or child performers and just being a fucking voice for those people. Um, I think it's, it makes folks who haven't really, looked at themselves uncomfortable and I have no shame in that. Like I'm not here to like make people comfortable. I'm here to be honest and honesty makes people uncomfortable, especially if they're um, constitutionally incapable of being honest. (laughs) Or if they, or if they carry out the, the systemic institution that keeps you in a spot or somebody else in the spot or subscribe to a belief that keeps that going. So you speaking your truth is good for everybody because it's very important for us to know what you went through. You know what I mean? Like we watched the movie, whatever, but we had no idea what the hell was going on. Um, 
how bad did it get for you around uh, addiction? Like, like what was the bottom? What did it look like? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So from the age of 14, which is like when I started like, you know, acting out sexually and acting out with food or like starving myself actively. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, when, with each year, with each year, I think a new addiction kind of like reared its head. Like, cause I was 14 when I started having sex and I was like, you know, 15 when I started smoking cigarettes and then 16 when I started drinking and smoking pot by 17, I'm a full pothead, you know, college, my love addiction really got, you know, revved up. And then, um, you know, by the end of college, I was doing Coke and, you know, pills. I manipulated my doctor into giving me clonopin and then overdosed on that. And like, you know, it was, it was fucked. I was like, you know, coming to class drunk or like, you know, missing school and, or, you know, going to rehearsal for a play, like kind of fucked up. And you shouldn't really do that, especially when you're doing like fight choreography and stuff like that with like, you know, swords, weaponry, et cetera. And I, I still did, you know? Um, and, you know, getting fired from jobs because I was visibly high. Um, what, and what job did you get high, fired from because you were high? It was just like Euro restaurant. Like I was a fucking Euro uh, cashier. You work, were you Chicago. cutting, were you cutting meat off the, off the Euro? No, I was just a cashier, but there was a day that I came in really late and I was hungover and high and, um, they were like, we don't need you here anymore. <laughs> you know, and in, in New York, like, nobody right, says. I understand. No, and no. it was a couple jobs that I got let go of because I didn't live up to the company's standards that I knew, like that, you know, I was, you know, it was because I was either drunk on the job or hungover. So why, don't, why doesn't anyone say gyro? Why do we all say it wrong in New York? Why do we say gyro in New York when it's obviously gyro? Because we're idiots. Because we're idiots. Because we're idiot kids, and we see G Y R O, and we think gyro. And even when people say gyro, you st- I still read gyro because I'm fucking stupid. Anyway, um, let's <laughs> let's get to the bottom though, because I want to like. It's like when do you yeah. get the feeling that you want to make the change? Like when does it when does it hit you that you're like fuck this? I need to change my life. I'll tell the story. So I was in a toxic relationship with this person who was like a narcissist and he had, you know, he had a girlfriend who lived in Germany and he had like eight side chicks and I was one of the side chicks. And I started having this thought in my mind, if I can be the favorite side chick, maybe he'll leave the girlfriend. And then I was just like, wow, I'm a fucking crazy person for having that thought. And like, you know, I'm, I'm harming all these women. I'm harming myself by staying with this guy we were doing a bunch of coke and like drinking together all the time and there was a night where I was just really fucked up and I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I just didn't know her I didn't know who was looking back at me Mm. I was just like who the fuck are you like what what has happened to you dude like you're you're sick you're just really sick and I don't know if you ever like were fucked up and like went to the bathroom and like, just like looked in your eyes and just saw death. Like, and, and it is what I, I, I did see like a person who was dying. And I, 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 that was the first time I had my, like, I had like, um, I don't like, it was like a higher power moment where I, I just was like surrendered. And I was just like, I need help. Like, and I said it to the mirror. I, I said it to the like the person in the mirror. I was like, I need help. You need help. Go get help. 
And then like a week later, um, that was like when I was living in Chicago. And then a week later, I got offered a job in L.A. and I was, you know, taken out of that relationship, out of the city that, you know, and Chicago is such a drinking city, too. And like especially in the comedy scene, like everybody is like fucked up all the time and does coke and you know the cubs lose you drink when the cubs win you drink when you know it's cold you drink when it's warm you drink it's just it's such a you know party city and i was just ready to get out of there and i just needed the the thing the push um so this job in la um happens and i am like still like you know i know i have a problem i'm like actively trying not to drink Um, And then I had a night where I went to this like party in Beverly Hills and got super fucked up. And then the next day I was just like, we're done. Like, this is, this is it. Like, I cannot do this anymore. Like the Coke, you know, was messing up my singing and like my nasal passages and I was having more nosebleeds and it's like super dry out here too. So that like didn't help at all. And basically on yeah, December, December 10th, 2017, the the show that I was working on, we were sending off one of the cast members. They were like done with their contract and we were having a little champagne toast. And again, I felt this gut deep voice say like, this is your last drink. Enjoy it. And it was a glass of champagne, just like my first drink. And you know, I just I took my time with it. And I had like this ceremonial moment. I was like looking in the glass and I remember just like watching the bubbles and yeah. And that was my last drink. And, and, you know, took me three months to get into like, you know, actual recovery. Like I was dry drunk for three months and, you know, still acting out sexually and, and starving myself and chain smoking a thousand cigarettes. Um, so I wouldn't drink or use, but yeah, then, then in March, so I, on March 10th, I celebrated three years, like, you know, in recovery actively. Um, very nice. And yeah, I'm really proud of myself. You're you just, know, wait, March 9th, this is just now. The only thing I have done perfectly is not drink or use, but you know. So you just got your three years, whatever, last week yeah. or something. That's awesome. That's so yeah. cool. Um, one of the quotes that I loved in the article you wrote was a kind of like all-encompassing quote. You wrote, from the age of 14, I used drugs, alcohol, sex, food, and self-harm to numb all of this pain. I've survived dozens of toxic relationships and three suicide attempts. I'm not saying all of this is because I played bass in a movie when I was a kid, but because I spent over a decade terrified that I'd peaked at 10 years old, you know, which is how it's rough. How how long did that last, that fear of peaking at 10? And what does that do to your psyche? It lasted from when I was 10. <laughs> like, I, well, no, you know what? I had a sense of hope, you know, after School of Rock. I was like, this is, this is great. Like, after School of Rock, I'm just going to do more movies and I'll be able to, like, not go back to school and I'll just be homeschooled and, like, become a celebrity and, you know, I think I I had that expectation. My family had that kind of hope and expectation of myself. And then when it didn't happen and I was starting to, you know, not get things. And I don't know, I, I went in for Hannah Montana a couple of times and like a couple other Disney shows and 
had general meetings with, you know, people in LA, like when I was a kid for like Nickelodeon, Disney and stuff. And there was just no interest because that was, it wasn't my time, you know? And when somebody hears like when somebody like me with black and white thinking that cognitive distortion, like here's like, it's just not your time. What I hear is it'll never be your time. Sure. Or your time already happened and you were dissociating through the whole thing anyway, because you were too scared to mess up your lines in the movie. Like, so yeah, I, I, that lasted up until honestly, up until I published that article which was a year ago. Well, that's like, awesome. Roughly a year ago. That's awesome. And um, I, I suffer a lot of the same kind of shit that you suffer, especially like black and white thinking and like having expectations like that don't have anything to do with reality. I was talking with my sponsor the other day, you know, like I'm just constantly trying to make Dopey like this big time podcast and I put all this energy and, you know, desire and expectation and he starts talking to me about acceptance. And I felt like it was almost the first time I ever heard the word acceptance. Like, I don't know how, you know, I'm five and a half years sober and I never considered accepting things as they are, that things might be the way they're supposed to be and that, that it's, it's okay. It was like this, I never heard the word in a nice way. And I, and I feel like you writing that piece was your acceptance of where you are. It and- was. And you know what? Before I had written that piece, I went to, um, I went to a meeting where that chapter was read. Acceptance is the answer. Um, and I had never read it. Like I had heard people say that like acceptance is the answer. Like, you know, you're, your serenity is directly uh, proportional to your expectations or whatever. And I'd heard people say that and I never, it's that thing of like, you know, just hearing this, you know, hearing the serenity prayer over and over and over. And then one day it just clicks what it means. Right. Like, or, or some, some line in any, you know, book that you read as much as, you know, some of us read the like recovery texts and whatever, like, <laughs> and then finally, like, seeing page 417 like just read and like digesting those words and swallowing those like chunks of truth I was just like wow like I really have the I still after you know so much not so much time but after all this time clean I'm still such a drunk because I can't accept fucking anything I can't accept the way this fucking meeting smells. I can't accept the way that my partner like blinks at me. I can't accept the way that I look in the mirror. I can't accept the fact that, you know, I didn't get Hannah Montana and somebody else who was highly deserving of that work did, you know, like, and I can't accept the fact that my first three sponsors fucking bailed on me because I would not listen, you know, but it all kind of hit me and I was just like, I have to get these thoughts on paper. So they're not in here. And, you know, this is after having worked through, you know, the program, uh, once over, you know, and, and I was in a good place and I checked in with my people, my sponsor, my, my, you know, trusted folks in recovery. And I was just like, Hey, like, does any of this, you know, that I've written seem like it might be harmful or might be, um, 
unpure or selfish or whatever. And they were all like, no, it seems really authentic and, and really pure and really loving and really powerful. And it sounds like a person who has done the work on themselves. And I was just like, all right, we'll publish it. And yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful that it's, it's gotten my, my name back out there. Um, you know, but I'm more just grateful that I got to tell the story and, and that so many people have, you know, in the year that it's been published, you know, responded to me saying like, I relate so much. I had no idea how like, you know, similar our stories are, you know, and it's just been an honor to, to have that kind of one-on-one connection where people say, I want what you have. Or when people say like, wow, like, you know, I had no idea that somebody I looked up to so much as a kid was going through exactly what I was going through. It's also just an amazing opportunity to start over. Like you've done so much cool shit and like, I mean, my wife sent me the article. I was like working on a fucking delivery for cats or something. And she's like, oh, you should write this woman. She'd be so good on your show. And I was like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, because I, I, we're, I mean, like, I think to suffer Hollywood, to suffer expectations, to suffer self-hatred, all this and the stuff with your parents, all that stuff, and to be able to find some serenity and even to understand what acceptance means. Like I resent so many things about AA all the time because I don't – it's hard for me to accept this stuff. It's hard for me to like hear this – like what you said about the serenity prayer. You can hear it, but it isn't until you hear it as a tool that it really becomes a tool because it's it's all tools. You know what I mean? Acceptance I, acceptance I used to feel uh, resentful of people using words like acceptance like because they wanted to be cool or like they were saying something that I didn't understand. And then the other day... That's how I felt about when people would be like, oh, I'm just going to turn it over. I was just like, what the fuck does that mean? Exactly. Turn it over. What, like, <laughs> it's just like some of those like, recovery and program like buzzwords that people use of course as a newcomer I was just like I hate this I hate all of this like cliches and now I'm the bitch who like you know texts an acronym of like you know fear stands for frantic <laughs> uh, or what is it fear stands for false evidence appearing real like <laughs> and my sponsees are like I hate you <laughs> well it's funny though because we resent it because I always heard fear was just fuck everything and run but um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I fucking I still resent that stuff. And then I get hit with the truth of it. And it's like I kind of smile at myself for resenting it because I there are character defects that I have that I still like. They make me feel fuzzy, like hating shit makes me feel somehow it still makes me feel good about myself to hate shit, which is me too. it is what it is. You know, we, we, we do our yep. best. Um, but I have to tell you, it's a, it's a total honor to have you come and tell a little bit of your story on our little stupid show and we're happy to have you in our community and I'm I'm just very honored to to get to talk to you. Oh, let me ask you this cuz I didn't do this to you. There the 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 lifeblood of Dopey is the Dopey story, which is like some fucked up drug story in your past that you you like to tell or maybe that you don't like to tell but you know it's like kind of like a ridiculous story. Do you have one on tap? I always put people on the spot with this. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have a really, I think I have a good one. Good. Let me, let me just ask 
Let me just ask my HP if this is what I should tell really quickly. Hold on. Yeah. So when I was uh, 15, (laughs) I was in a band called Sweet Revenge. And I was in a band with the boys who lived kind of a block away from me. There were two brothers and they were uh, definitely like their parents were alcoholics and they would give me alcohol all the time and cigarettes and enable me. And there was a night where we all got, um, we got pretty drunk and we were like running around in a like high school, like park, uh, playground situation. And, um, (laughs) I mean like me and somebody else were like hooking up in the little tube slide, like, And then at one point we all were like just laying on the grass and like, you know, being fucking idiots, like looking at the sky and be like, whoa, fucking this is so cool. And then um, we got we got escorted. uh, We got picked up by the cops. And um, I (laughs) they were like, where do you live? And I was just like, oh, like my parents aren't in town right now, which was a bold faced fucking lie. Um, and I was just like, but you can drop me off at my next door neighbors and they'll vouch for me. Not knowing whatsoever. Like, you know, I didn't have a cell phone at that time either. You know, this is like early two thousands when not everybody had a phone yet. Um, and my, my, my next door neighbor at the time was my dentist, uh, Scotty (laughs) and they dropped me off and they were like, Hey, like, you know, she's saying that her parents are out of town. And I just had this moment where I like looked at my dentist and I was just like, please, you motherfucker, just fucking like I was just like looking in his eyes, like trying to telepathically communicate to him. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, she's she's good. We're yeah, they're they're out of town and like we're we're technically like responsible for her this weekend. Um and the officer was like, All right. And then my dad like was watching the whole thing through the window. Oh my God. <laughs> he saw the whole fucking thing. <laughs> and, um, I was grounded, uh, for several weeks. I couldn't go to band practice. I couldn't, uh, see my, my bandmates. And of course I was in love with the drummer. So I was like pining over him. And yeah, it was just, it, I mean, the, the fact that I lied to a cop is Loki pretty badass. Like, <laughs> But yeah, it, it kind of sucks that I put my my neighbor in that position to lie for me. I think that's fair. I think he he did the right thing by covering for you because he was young once and he he knew you were a good kid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, he did, and he ended up. I mean, he's he's still my you know he's still my dentist. <laughs> Not my next door neighbor anymore, but still my dentist, and still you know he always has vouched for my career. He's always been like he's really into music and. He's a great guy. He, he definitely has like taken care of me and has been kind of like an honorary like father figure for a long time. So shout out to Scotty for Scotty. Uh, covering for me, even though it didn't really work. <laughs> but let me ask you a question, though. Does he give you nitrous or no nitrous? No nitrous. Uh, no nitrous. Well, I don't know. Scotty, never, like, had that sucks. Drilled uh, cavities or anything like that. I've never had like I've got pretty good dental hygiene so it's more like whenever i go see him it's like we we kind of talk about music and and chill and he shows me new bands that he likes and i show him new bands i like um you still play you still playing 
I still, I sing, um, which I didn't really sing in the movie. Um, it's, it's funny because like while we were filming, I learned that I could sing because we would do little karaoke parties and like we would like, you know, put on little uh, talent shows like during the school day, for especially because all of the kids in the movie really liked to sing. So, you know, we all would put on little shows and like choreograph little numbers and stuff and like sing Hillary Duff songs. I was really into Avril Lavigne at the time and those like kind of emo girls, um, <laughs> Alanis and stuff. So I would, I learned how to sing through, uh, singing like Alanis and Avril, those Canadian, uh, bratty emo girls that we love. Um, and yeah, so today, like I, I do sing, I, I write my own music. Um, I play guitar um, I don't like actively like go out of my way to play guitar, but if I need to write something, I'll pick it up and then I'll typically, you know, figure out what chords I use and then send it off to somebody who's like more skilled and they'll like do my underscoring for me. Um, and yeah, yeah. Was there ever a, a, a thought? I'm sure there was a thought, but was there ever a flirtation to putting the band together in a real way as adults and, and being a band? Uh, the school of rock. Yeah. You know, I think, I think they, I think we fantasize about that a lot. And, and, you know, Joey and Kevin, you know, the, the two actors who played, um, uh, Joey played Zach Mooneyham and, and Kevin played Freddie Jones. The three of us were really, really tight knit. All three of us ended up going through, you know, addictive stuff. And I won't tell their stories. Like, I mean, and, and, you know, I don't know where they're at in their journey. We did just, uh, we did just have like a mini reunion um, virtually on zoom. Uh, some of us, like not everyone was there, but it was nice to see a lot of them. And a couple of us are like sober, sober now, <laughs> like, you know, and, and it's really nice to just have that, like the, the kind of Venn di- diagram of having been in school of rock and now also having the like recovery. unity of like recovery totally. um, is really beautiful. Um, we love each other so much and we're this family and every time we do get back together to like hang out, even if it's just like, you know, a couple of us meeting on zoom to just hang for a second, or if it's just me like FaceTiming somebody from the cast, like it is nice. And, and I will always cherish that like relationship because they were my best friends for, you know, a couple years. Cause we had, you know, we'd worked on the film and then we would go back to school for a little bit and then come back and do press and then go back to school for a little bit and then come and do more press in different countries. And it was just like this family. And now, you know, almost 20 years later. Oh, okay. Well it is 17 and a half years later, not going to age ourselves further. Um, but it's just, it's so nice to see how everyone's grown into these just like amazing humans like they're, they're somebody's a um, OBGYN and somebody's a lawyer and there's like you know this, uh, Kevin who played Freddie is still drumming Joey who played Zach is still playing guitar I'm like kind of I don't know I like to think that I'm saving the world you know one recovering addict at a time uh, one one dopey episode know. one dopey episode at a time put the band yes. together put the band together start a trio I'm telling you People, I mean, it would be so fun. Make an EP. I think it would be fun. They're both really good musicians. It's 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 interesting. Like, you know, people. It's TikTok is uh, is really fun because people like <laughs> people love School of Rock so much, and it's 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 it makes me so grateful because I'm like glad that I was in a movie that holds up and like stands the test of time and isn't like you know problematic. <laughs> um, 
uh, and it, it feels good to like have worked on such a feel good prod product, um, project. Wow. Not product. It's both. It's a feel good product and a feel good project. And it's such a good movie that I've, I could literally watch it. Like I've watched it many, 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 many times. And even the music, the original music in it is great. It's like really good. You know, like me and my, it's catchy. My daughter loves it. I love it. I, I, I watched it full on drug addict and I was like, this is the coolest movie I ever saw. And if that is true and you show it to your 11 year old kid and you're like, isn't this cool? And she's like, yeah, that's the fucking litmus test. Try to start yeah. a trio with these people. Try it. Yeah, try we'll it. see. I mean, we'll see. I love, I love being in a band. I love being the front woman. Um, I did, you know, before I left Chicago, I assembled a group of uh, friends to, you know, do like a um, like a goodbye show for me, um, which was really fun. And I got to just like sing a bunch of my songs and covers. We did some like heart songs and um, nice. other like St. Vincent um, songs uh, and, and whatnot. And it was really nice to like be the front person and be able to like sing and then like take the guitar and play a couple numbers by myself and then go back to just like being singing and having everyone else backing me up. It was tight. I honestly, I really miss playing in bands and, you know, while I am working on like a thousand things, I've got this podcast. I'm also writing a pilot. I'm also writing a couple of short films. Like, but I, I do, you know, there's nothing like fucking being in a band and just like commanding the stage in that way. It's the best. Um, there really is nothing like that. But do it all. I mean, I think that's awesome. Do all those things. I, I love being in a band because you're with friends and you're creating something together. And when, when you're done playing, when the song is over, it's over and you can go home and write something. But when you're doing it, it's magic and communication and interaction and just, it's the, and you're young, you know what I mean? Enjoy it. I'm old. I'm crusty. I work in an old deli. The fuck you are young and you can do all these things. And I, and I, and you're, you'll make up with your mother. I have a lot of faith that great things are on the way. I really do. How Thank about your dad? You. Do you talk to your dad or no? Yeah. I talked to my dad for like an hour this morning. He's really sweet. My dad's, you know, got his own, he's had his own struggles with addiction. Um, you know, more so with food and stuff, but you know, and, and some, you know, money behaviors that, you know, I think seeing both me and my sister, you know, are, are in recovery. Um, and I think him seeing us kind of taking that kind of action towards change and towards growth, um, is, is inspiring to him. And it's, it's really nice to see him grow in compassion and understanding, um, uh, as you know, the years pass. Right on. Rivka, I, I didn't even get to talk about you being Jewish and Filipino because I'm Jewish and I grew up in a Filipino house all the time. So we have a lot, we have a lot going on there. I had to say. Incredible. Before, you'll have to have me back on. Well, whenever you want, you be in touch, okay? And thank you so much for coming through. I really do appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, be in touch, for real. If you need anything, just never hesitate to ask. Will do, and same to you, yeah. If you have any podcasting questions... I'm doing it, you know, I could, maybe I'll be a resource for you. Hell yeah. Right on. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Rivka. So that was Rivka Reyes. And, um, I really, really love that talk. And I hate that, uh, the timing coincides with this kid's death, Kevin Clark. But, um, 
you know, you know what they say at my meeting all the time is they say there are no coincidences. And I totally disagree with that. I think that there are tons of coincidences. And even if a coincidence is incredibly apropos, it's still a coincidence. That's just, maybe I'm a cynic, but that's just what I believe. And maybe you guys are wondering if Rivka reached out to me to help do her, uh, her new podcast. And the answer is no. And maybe you're wondering if I reached out to Rivka um, since that interview, and also the answer is no. But I'm going to reach out now before I put up this episode. And um, I do think it's awesome when someone so young has, has clean time and they are working a program, and it's awesome. I know that when I was young, I couldn't get anything together. But I guess, you know, somebody's clock to getting well is, you know, it depends on the person. It took me to be 41 and totally miserable to need to change my life. But I think you, you know, it's a real, like, when the shoe fits, you wear it, you know? You know, it reminds me of one of my favorite Bob Marley songs, which is Who the Cap Fit, which means... You get what you deserve. Who the cap fit, let them wear it. If it's your time to get sober and well, then it's your time. And if it's not, then it's not. The, the problem is when it's not and, um, and you get hurt or you die. So be cautious out there, everybody, in the dopey nation. And now I'm going to read an email. So here we go. This is an email from Brooke Potter. She says, hey, Dave, my name is Brooke. You can use my name, and I love your podcast. It's been a huge part of my recovery. I have 104 days as of right now, and it's definitely been a rough road to say the least. I sent in a story a while back that got read on the show. It was episode 228 with Alexis Haynes, and it was a highlight of my early recovery. I just wanted to send in this story that I've been hanging on to for a while. Enjoy. Towards the end of my longest run in 2018, I was an absolute mess, trying to self-medicate, self-medicating the self-medication, trying but mostly failing to cook crack, and talking to the insulation behind my fridge that I thought was a living creature spying on me. I spent a lot of nights sitting on my floor, doing lines of blow off the cracked screen of my iPad, and listening to the the police radar apps because I was so convinced that they were on their way to my apartment. I listened for hours, waiting to hear them announce my address. I monitored the local news sources and perused the neighborhood forums for my area to make sure no one was catching on to what was really going down in my apartment, me alone, tweaked out. I waited to hear the sirens approaching, getting louder and louder, closer and closer to my apartment. I still hallucinate hearing sirens sometimes, and hearing the real thing throws me off completely. One particular morning after being up for a few days, I took some Xanax I had stolen from my job, or maybe I bought them from a dealer. I'm not totally sure. I usually used it to come down after a rough binge when the withdrawals rendered me completely incapacitated. I would be incapable of getting comfortable. My entire body would tense and I would be clenching every single muscle. I was anxious and paranoid, nauseous and exhausted, but couldn't sleep for the life of me. There wasn't a position in the world that would allow me to sleep it off. I would waddle, hunched over from my couch to the toilet, back and forth crying because I wanted the pain to end. It was then that I normally would take a benzo to calm myself down or just to knock myself out. Except this day, I took way too much. I started to feel hit hard and decided I needed more cocaine to come back up a little. 
using some drugs to fix the effects of other drugs because that makes sense. And I didn't, and it doesn't create an unbearable vicious cycle at all, which is, you know, sarcasm here. Anyway, so I hit up my dealer who usually answered within 10 to 20 minutes. He hit me back and I hopped in my car to do my normal copping routine. I got on the main road and headed to the gas station where I usually went to withdraw my drug money. I was nodding in and out, blacking out, and then waking up suddenly a few times to stop quickly before rear-ending someone. Unfortunately, one of the times I didn't come to before hitting the car in front of me. I think it was some middle-aged woman, and I totaled my car. I may have ruined hers too, but I was more concerned that I was going to miss my opportunity to meet my dealer. We both pulled over, and I don't remember a lot of what happened. From what I do recollect, I called my parents and told them I crashed my car. I sat in the tow truck driver's passenger seat, and he, even he could tell I was in rough shape. I was falling in and out of consciousness while on the phone with my dad and kept waking up to him saying my name and asking, him if I, and asking me if I was okay. My absolute angel of parents, my absolute angels of parents eventually drove an hour up to me and brought me back to my apartment. According to them, I told them everything about my using and how bad it really was. They took me to the hospital, which, of course, I begged the nurses for benzos for my anxiety, which they gave to me. Healthcare, am I right? I told my parents and my boyfriend at the time some more about the horrors of what had been going on with me for the past five months. They sent me to Four Winds, a psychiatric facility in upstate New York, which I actually enjoyed a lot. I learned a lot about addiction and went to my first 12-step meeting. I did relapse the day I left treatment because my boyfriend uh, bought me a bottle of whiskey. But that's besides the point. Hope you enjoyed my silly little tale. Thanks for reading and toodles for Chris Brooke. And I never wrote her back. I think that's a crazy email. I don't think that's a silly little tale. I think that's nuts. And um, it reminds me of a lot of uh, car crashes I had in California Today I was, or yesterday I was driving to pick up my laundry and I, I like, uh, I had to make a left turn and there were cars speeding up to me and I smartly waited for the cars to speed up and then I took the left turn. But years ago with Todd, we were all fucked up and coming back from copping and driving my girlfriend's sob and I just took the left turn and there was a car coming full speed and just smashed into us and it would have killed Todd had it not been for the steel frame of the sob. And I remember just how much I wanted to flee the scene so I could get high. I, I got into so many car crashes in California. I'm glad Brooke sent this in, and I hope she is still sober. I need to write her back, which makes me wonder, if you sent in an email and you didn't hear from me, please write me again, and I will write back. Uh, sometimes I find myself too busy or... I, I lose track because I'm probably very ADD, but I want to have a, a nice back and forth with you guys. So send in stories. I will write back. Brooke, thank you for sending me this story. It also reminded me of this other time in California. I had a car and the brakes stopped working, and I don't even know how this happened, but I was on the highway and the brakes basically stopped working, and I was high on everything, and, uh, and I was scared. But somehow I managed to get off the highway, coast down the service road, and there was nobody in front of me. I turned into like a college parking lot, and with no brakes, I circled around the parking lot until to stop myself, I, I hit like a, a light, a light post. 
you know, and it wasn't such a bad smash that it damaged the car because I had been circling for so long. But that's the kind of way I, I, I lived in California in cars. I crashed up so, like at least four cars. It's a miracle that I got away from there without hurting anybody or myself. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the bonus episode. Check out Rivka Reyes's podcast. Um, rest in peace, Kevin Clark. Terrible tragedy. And stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.